Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Dedham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. It's my great pleasure to introduce Jennifer Dingman, who has been our patient advocate and the voice of the patient and really sets our compass heading for now it's uh, 18 months that we have been leading these webinars on behalf of the central critical workers. Jennifer uh, Dingman um, is one of the winners of the Pete Conrad Patient Safety Award for her terrific work with other advocates in helping um, actually, the, the success in helping bring uh, the success uh, uh, to fruition of the uh, government's pay for performance program called Hospital Acquired Conditions that has saved uh, tens of billions of uh, dollars uh, and uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. She's a uh, published author. Uh, due to a medical error in her family, she was uh, driven to help others and is tireless in her support of others. So no better or no more fitting person to introduce uh, this topic today than Jennifer Dingman, my dear friend, who I meet with every Saturday morning with the group that undertook the hack, uh, hack work and are working on other things. Jennifer, would you start us off today? Thank you, Dr. Denham, for that very generous introduction. I'm um, very honored and humbled to be here and I'm thankful to be a part of this great program for such a long time. We've done such great work together and saving lives is really important to me. Today's program is really, really going to be great. I'm really excited about it. I encourage everyone here to share the, the video that will be up online with all of your colleagues, family, friends, and um, anyone that you feel might benefit from it. Um, I, again, thank you for having me and I'll turn it back to you because I'm really excited to get on with the program today. Thank you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jennifer. We've got a terrific group uh, today as uh, both uh, speakers and reactors. Uh, we have John Nance, uh, ABC commentator, uh, a, a best-selling author, uh, a former captain with America uh, with Alaskan Airlines, and also an attorney. Dr. Greg Boats is recorded today, and he has really been our North Star for clinical development, both a, a full professor at the uh, University of Texas uh, MD Anderson and an adjunct full professor at Stanford Medical Center. We're going to hear from Brittany Bartow, who is a community pediatrician who I've known since she was a young lady, and now she is a practicing community pediatrician. Chief Adcox is a co-founder of the MedTAC program, which uh, is uh, it, through which this pro, this uh, this uh, uh, coronavirus community of practice is built. And Chief Adcox is the chief security officer and the executive vice president at MD Anderson Cancer Center. David Grinsfelder is one of our uh, one of our young adult team and our student outreach team and, and a, a, an alumnus of um, of uh, University of California Berkeley who works uh, at Amazon Media and is uh, is uh, heading towards a career in law. Heather Foster will be joining us, who's a nurse preventionist, who's been a longstanding uh, participant in this program, and Charlie Denham, who's the co-founder of the MedTech program back in 2015. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Christopher Peabody, going by, who goes by TOF, is a uh, UCSF assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of the Innovation Center. He's going to carry a lot of the water today as we talk about the immunocompromised patients. Randy Steiner is with us live. He's 
the Director of Emergency Response at uh, the University of California, Irvine. Pavita Singh, who I've known since she was a young lady, is a public health expert and international best-selling author uh, and is, uh, is a social entrepreneur doing great work in the community for young women. We have, we have with us today uh, um, also our head of the EMT uh, uh, organization for the University of California, Irvine, is a pre-med student, uh, and Paul uh, Batia is, uh, is a terrific uh, leader here in our community in Orange County. And we also have Gunita Singh, who's also an attorney who will be commenting on our emergency medicine checklist. It's a real delight to have David Bashk, who is not only a, a, another winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award, but also a lifesaver. He saved one of the three leaders of our program that's actually saved life out, a life out in the community, uh, an award-winning educator and uh, co-founder of the our Scholastic program, along with Charlie Denham uh, here at Orange County. So we've got a, a great group to react and a great group of recorded uh, experts who will be speaking today. I'm going to move quickly through, uh, uh, through some of the logistics. We just want to let everyone know, uh, and the majority of the audience that will be viewing this or be or viewing it on demand. You can go back to the website periodically where we curate the content and you'll be able to find new content that pertains to these rapidly changing areas of emerging science. Uh, today, as of today, I am uh, showing the graph of uh, the Delta surge. Although the news is describing a reduction in infections in some communities, there are rising infections in others. We've exceeded the capability of some of our states to be able to deliver care and are still in crisis uh, guidelines. And uh, some of the modelers are modeling that we'll probably have a rise here by year end, and we really can tackle this. Um, we're north of 700,000 deaths in America. We've exceeded the 20, uh, the uh, uh, the 1918 loss of life uh, of that flu, uh, which was definitely not a milestone that we wanted to see this year. So uh, I want to just tell you who you are as an audience. We have uh, leaders and we have essential critical workers uh, who we started with 18 months ago from 16 industry sectors who are identified by Homeland Security to be critical essential workers. Teachers were added to that on the 18th of, uh, of August in uh, 2020. Um, 20, uh, uh, 20, and uh, we are so delighted to have David Besh with us today. Uh, we've all been working and focused on the 110,000 preventable deaths that can be targeted by just targeting eight conditions with good Samaritan care. And as I've said, uh, David Bashk is, uh, is our co-founder of our Scholastic program, and we've been teaching kids from 8 to 80 in multiple uh, communities. We have six articles you could go back and read if you wish they'll be posted on the website there are two our most recent two articles with the with the um with the uh, campus safety magazine are pertinent to today's uh, topic and an upcoming article will be coming out in the next three to four weeks and those of you that are watching online you'll be able to download an article addressing an emergency checklist we'll cover today so very briefly we discovered and believed that the family transmission chains were going to be the Achilles heel uh, uh, for us uh, in our uh, country. And we began studying households. We now have, the, I, we're told, the world's largest study of households. And we focused on um, infection that can occur at home and in the community and to block the transmission chains, knowing that many of our great organizations would have good protocols. 
But the dilemma is, is that uh, uh, COVID is actually spreading through communities and through, uh, through households. And it turns out that we were right. So our belief is that if you uh, save the families, you save the worker. If you save the worker, you can save the nation. You can watch uh, longer uh, uh, videos regarding the work that we've done over the last 18 months from our website. And we also have short video topics and highly recommend the recent uh, updated uh, mask video, which we won't cover today, and a number of our 90-minute programs. Uh, by year end, we have, will have completed 40 90-minute broadcasts uh, focusing on this uh, targeted area and 20 what we call survive and thrive training programs of which uh, this program is one today and our roadmap was to address uh, uh, the critical issues that we were discovering through uh, this network of critical essential worker families uh, and most recently in the last couple of months you might go back to our essential uh, worker toolbox um, we draw on a uh, on a group of 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities and 500 subject matter experts uh, that we have gradually been blessed to accumulate over the last uh, 37 years. Uh, we have now 130 experts that are working on the program like this, who range from doctors, nurses, uh, pro, uh, infection preventionists, uh, world-class world -class educators, and you'll see some uh, leaders in business and others uh, that we had uh, working with us uh, on our multiple documentaries, of which we have a number in the pipeline today. Um, you see a number of academic centers uh, before you on the slide uh, um, that I'm showing today. Uh, essential workers from and families from these organizations were contributors to this work. And then finally, we've had the wonderful opportunity of working on the Take the Shot, Save a Life program to drive vaccinations in what we call the movable metal. That is the group of individuals that are not anti-vaxxers, but the group that are just reluctant and fearful and anxious about getting vaccination. And we have a wonderful group of uh, students and student leaders and alumni uh, from these multiple organizations who have joined us to work on this project, to deploy this through our young adult, the under 30 group who are alumni from great universities, who are at work today, who are in high school today, and many that uh, that that uh, that we um, uh, that we know are now at risk, but also uh, could potentially benefit from uh, a wonderful set of uh, vaccines that are very safe, and uh, so we feel very blessed. So let's get into our topic today. We're focused on the high vulnerability, uh, uh, high vulnerability groups of those that are immunocompromised, our seniors, uh, and our children. And uh, th these are absolutely vulnerable populations that really need very specific uh, care that is very, very important. And what I'll do is share a recorded uh, a short video with uh, Dr. Greg Boats, and then we'll move on to something critically important, which we call the ICE checklist and hear from David Beshka, our, our world-class educator. Dr. Boats, thank you so much for taking time today to help set the stage for the very important topic of these special populations and the special care they require, um, just to set the stage for the immunocompromised. You're a critical care doctor taking care of probably the most immunocompromised patients we, uh, that, we, that we could see it in a hospital. Uh, first off, why is it important to focus on that population? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, my hospital is filled with people who are uh, undergoing treatment for cancer or have had uh, consequences of long-term cancer 
And so all of them are essentially immunocompromised. And the reason we're so concerned about the immunocompromised population is that they don't have the normal response to a foreign invader like a bacteria or a virus. And so their ability to fight an infection is severely hampered. And so we try to certainly enhance the public health strategies that we've talked about all along. Wearing a mask, washing your hands, keeping physical distance and uh, a good practice of cleaning contact surfaces. It doesn't hurt, although we find that that route of transmission for COVID is probably less important than the aerosol route. Great. And now as we talk about our seniors and how important they are, so many are vaccinated, but many are still not vaccinated. And uh, why must, must we take special care of our seniors? And I'm thinking of breakthrough infections and uh, the things we need to do for this very special population. Well, I think we need to pay particular attention to our seniors because they have perhaps two strikes already. The first is that your immune system becomes less responsive as you age. And so your susceptibility to a breakthrough infection is increased. As well, they have limited or reduced reserve uh, compared to younger people. And so when they do get sick, they may have more significant problems with their respiratory system or their cardiovascular system. And so all we can do to protect them from the, the COVID virus uh, is good work. Um, vaccination is so important in this age group in order to protect them, but also continuing with the strategies that we've talked about in order to keep them safe. Finally, Dr. Boats, we're going to talk about children, and we have Dr. Barco Owens, who will comment on children as a community pediatrician. However, you and I both have young people that may not be children, but they're still in their youth and young adult years. Uh, why are our children such a special population and why must we really focus our attention there? Well, certainly our children are very important to us. Um, and so we wanna make sure we do everything to try to protect them. And while it's true that their susceptibility to severe COVID is less than adults and seniors, they are still susceptible. And the consequences of having a COVID infection can be long lasting in kids, especially with this overwhelming inflammatory response that they might have as a result of COVID infection. We've been limited in our ability to vaccinate this age group because of lack of data about the safety of such immunization. But more and more information is coming out and it looks like we are going to start immunizing kids even to a younger age than we are now. And so it's really important to move towards vaccination for that age group. Uh, we, we are going to address uh, a, an emergency checklist that's absolutely critical. We're covering medical power of attorney, smartphone, in case of emergency contact notification, knowing your emergency providers, and medical record access. I just want to establish the concept for you of what we call in healthcare the golden hour. If we can get uh, emergency care to someone within an hour, not that the hour is just, you know, is a uh, drop off of a cliff, but that first hour is absolutely critical. And this is why we, we as an organization are focusing on failure to rescue. So take a moment when you get a chance, there's a good uh, article on the golden hour in uh, Wikipedia. 
And what we'll be covering in more detail as we progress are th these three elements, getting a power of attorney for anyone who is uh, 18 years of, old, uh, of age and older who might be single. These are college students. Uh, this is really anybody uh, who does not have um, a, a, a marital partner who might be able to speak on their behalf if uh, they couldn't answer questions and if they cannot uh, make decisions for healthcare. Absolutely critical. Secondly, smartphone in case of emergency notification. Most of us didn't realize until um, we learned from uh, a, a terrible story, but a great organization that is helping college students understand uh, that we can take our smartphones right now, almost every smartphone, and automatically uh, require and, and ask the smartphone to automatically contact those in, that we need to have contacted in case of emergency. Critical for children under 18, really anyone, seniors, absolutely critical. The third is whether you are on campus or live near a campus or you're living at home, all of us should know where our best emergency care providers are, where the level one or level two or level three trauma centers are, and where we would need to go if someone was seriously injured or seriously uh, ill. And then third is being able to have access to medical records. And everyone should have these available for our caregivers, but especially the immune compromised, especially uh, our seniors and especially uh, our children. Uh, this was drawn to our attention uh, by an article in the USA Today about uh, Corey Hausman. And his mother is a real hero, uh, has started an organization called uh, College 911. Read the story, learn about how most of us don't realize that with someone who's over 18, the doctors, our clinicians, our emergency care and critical care doctors cannot talk to parents unless they have a medical power of attorney. And so uh, College 911 is an excellent resource, and they're championing the cause uh, in, in, in uh, legislative areas uh, regarding law, but they really drew our attention to this critical issue, and most of us didn't realize what a great benefit that we could have. So we're going to drill down to into this in detail, but in order to be able to have Dr. Um, uh, or have uh, uh, David Bash, who I, I could call doctor since he saved a life, uh, uh, share his thoughts with us. We're going to move uh, directly to uh, a project that he undertook with Charlie uh, Denham, my son, uh, who recorded a message for you today uh, and really kind of address what's really critical regarding our children and what's important. Mr. Beshke is an award-winning award uh, educator here in Orange County, um, fantastic teacher. Uh, and on a, uh, the uh, two days after he had learned one of the techniques with our MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program, saved a life, saved a life in front of doctors that didn't know a very simple technique that really none of us, or not many of us learn in our in general medical training. This is our group of Cub Scouts who started at you know, when they were in fifth grade to uh, who we tested the process of using uh, tourniquets, uh, learning CPR and learning the techniques that ultimately became the MedTech program. Um, up to date today, uh, these are rescue stations that now are being put in up and down uh, the beach, uh, beaches here in Southern California, and we're branching out to Florida and other locations where automatic defibrillators stop the bleed kits and at the beach surfing uh, uh, surf gear that could help uh, um, anyone, bystanders, save lives. Um, there is Mr. Bashk uh, and another one of our wonderful uh, teammates who's now at NYU Film School. Uh, the two of them learn techniques just working with others and teaching others 
they both saved lives. And this has happened now three times with our educators, and they both won the Soaring Eagle Award. So it's a delight to have uh, uh, David Besh speak with us. He, Charlie, and I, and, and uh, others, actually, uh, one of our former hospitals or uh, healthcare industry CEOs were together on thanks, last Thanksgiving and put together a checklist, a, a holiday huddle checklist, knowing that families would be getting together uh, over the holidays. And what could we do to prevent uh, spread of, of COVID. Um, this checklist uh, started the work at about four in the morning, uh, uh, deployed it that day, and then it was then uh, uh, spread through video to 18,000 families and, and went much broader. Now, what's happened since we put this checklist together? The checklist merely talks about each of the things that we all know we need to do, social distance, wearing masks, uh, hand hygiene, not touching our faces. But what's happened since then is now we've learned the major spread route for COVID is aerosol, the lightweight uh, uh, droplets where evaporation exceeds gravity and they float in the air for hours. So this checklist and the emphasis is being updated uh, uh, to focus on aerosols and less focus on maybe some of the other areas like cleaning utensils and others. Uh, we've updated a mask uh, video and most of the top leaders are recommending that, that cloth masks are just not cutting it with the Delta virus. So please watch this video. It goes into the science behind why we need to focus on uh, what we call filter, fit and finish. Filter, fit and finish, the best filtration, a good fit so no air escapes and uh, then finish meaning uh, to be able to make sure uh, that we're disposing of or we're cleaning the mask without contaminating ourselves and making ourselves sick. So I'm going to play a short uh, uh, video of uh, 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 Charlie, and then we'll ask Mr. Besh to talk to us about the chief family officer and uh, his advice regarding children. We challenge you to be a family lifeguard. We have learned a lot about keeping your family safe. We need to emphasize aerosol risk in protecting those who are most vulnerable. You really can turn the science into safety. As we head into the 2021 holiday season, we pray you protect your families when you get together. So a, sh a short message uh, 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 to other high school students and students. And uh, we would love to have uh, Mr. Bash now give us his perspective uh, on the concept of the um, Chief Family Officer, and also, uh, David, what you'd like to share with us re regarding the uh, holiday lifeguard, or now it's year-round lifeguard checklist that we put together that's been deployed uh, through schools and scouts and, and uh, just across the nation. Thank you for your great work. Jack, you're welcome, Dr. Denham. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, good evening or good morning, everyone. Welcome. Um, so uh, as an educator, um, Part of my job is to not just be working with and, and, and helping educate children, but mainly the adults, the family. And um, as the chief financial officer of a family, the number one thing that we have to remember is that we have to accept ownership of the outcomes for our families, whether that be positive or negative. And if we're going to assume that role, then we have to take that responsibility very seriously. And if we want positive outcomes, which we would assume we all do, then we have to do our work. We have to do our homework and put in our... Um, our time in order to make sure we're leading that role properly. So as the CFO, first thing you want to do is number one, take it seriously. Number two, do your homework, keep up with as much information and current data as possible so that what you're doing with your families um, is effective and appropriate. Um, 
The other aspects, when you're dealing with your family, whether it be adults and in particular the children, oftentimes people feel that they have to water down or dilute or somehow kind of skirt the honesty of the situation with their children. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Now, we obviously want to make sure that we're, we're being appropriate, not necessarily being like overly dramatic or gory for children. But um, with, if we're coming into contact, let's say in the holiday season, you have some elderly people that might be coming over to your home or you might be visiting um, somebody in a, an elderly facility, you need to be honest. And we need to talk about the honesty and let them know what immunocompromised might mean. Um, and, and keeping the, the children informed. We don't want to keep them in the dark. That just leads to questions. That leads to anxiety. That leads to um, uh, unsafe behaviors. And it's just not effective. So number one is a CFO with your children, honesty, direct honesty, letting them know what's going on, defining terms, giving them a full comprehensive picture of what's to come and what they'll be doing. Uh, the other part um, is, is hands-on regular practice. And one thing that you can do, which I've done with my family when we go and visit my mother who lives in a retirement community, is we talked about what, what the behavior was going to look like and what we were going to do in the restaurant. And we actually created a little bit of a flow map in our kitchen. We mimicked what the restaurant might look like. And if you have to use the restroom, I have three young children that seemingly use the restroom multiple times during a meal. And we practiced walking to the restroom. How do you walk? What route are you going to take? How much distance are you going to keep between people? Where's your mask going to be during that time? Um, regular practice, effective practice regarding where you're going to be, the setting. Let's say you're going to be at home and you know you're going to have quite a few guests over at the dinner table. Where are people going to sit? If you need to go and, and get some food, what's the best route to take regarding the people that the guests you might have at home? And also as a family officer, you want to engage. And I think this picture here does a nice job of including everyone's voice. Children um, have a lot of wonderful questions. Children have a lot of wonderful insights and they also have a lot of great feedback and asking them, keeping them in the loop, asking them for their opinions, asking what kind of questions they might have and what kind of feedback they might be able to provide the family um, to improve the routines and to improve um, the, the effectiveness of whatever you might be doing as a family. So um, number one, honesty with children. Number two, hands-on regular practice of routines. And number three, giving everybody a voice and eliciting feedback getting their feedback um, from the process. And um, with the, the holiday, which now like the year round checklist, giving kids jobs. We do, we oftentimes underestimate children's abilities to, um, to take on some leadership roles and within the home where they feel comfortable around family and friends, where they feel especially comfortable is a great way to um, engage them and uh, give them opportunities to be a second or third pair of eyes to make sure that um, people are wearing masks to make sure that we are keeping our distance, making sure that windows and doors stay open, giving kids responsibilities, giving them an opportunity to have a voice and have some leadership in the process is an incredibly effective strategy um, to implement as the chief financial officer or chief family officer, excuse me. So um, CFO is an important role. Take it, take it seriously. Do your homework, work together with your team, revise your plan elicit feedback and give people a voice. Those are the best things that you can do as a CFO for your family. David, I know we're thread the needle and you're off to teach a course in a couple of minutes. Can you just frame for everyone the experience of when we have the kids actually simulate and run a code and, and, and in front of their grandparents and parents at the end of a, a course where we might teach third, fourth, fifth graders? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've done this with as young as uh, preschool students with my son actually demonstrating how to put on a tourniquet and um, teaching my wife how to perform CPR on me if she needed to. Um, Dr. Denham, there's, as you know, there's no, we don't get any greater feedback than when the parents come in after we've had, you know, six or seven weeks of working with these children and these children teach, they put their parents through a seminar of those basic life-saving skills of CPR, bleeding control, AED use, EpiPen use, these parents are absolutely blown away by the children's abilities to retain the information, to teach it, and to ultimately um, deploy it effectively. It's it's really it's really the best part of of what we do with the uh, scholastic uh, programs is giving those kids an opportunity. Again, here it is: give them a role, give them some leadership opportunities, give them a voice, and um, they're gonna they're gonna really blow everybody's minds. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. I'm going to let you go, David, but as, as you and I know, uh, we high five and say a prayer after every time we uh, do the course. It's my favorite thing to do, and you're just such a world-class educator. There couldn't be any more fun than working with the kids with you. Thank you, sir. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Okay, great. So um, uh, we had to let David go. He's just between classes. Uh, now what we're going to do is we're going to address um, four elements of what we've come up with which will be an upcoming article in the uh, Campus Safety Magazine, uh, which will be posted for those of you and many more of you will be watching this uh, online that, than the smaller group that are live today. Uh, and uh, the title, working title is Break the Ice Barrier in Case of Emergency Checklist. And again, we'll have Dr. Uh, Boats uh, kind of address this and uh, then we'll dig into it in detail. And then we'll have a lot of you, uh, this wonderful panel, we have react to it. Dr. Boats, uh, you and I, Chief Adcox and uh, Charlie Denham are writing an article about four critical elements that we need to be focused on with our youth, our college students, but actually really probably anybody. And those four elements are having a medical power of attorney and advanced directive, knowing how to use our smartphone to notify those in case of emergency we wish to have contacted, why it's really important that we know where our emergency providers are for our serious uh, emergencies. And finally, why medical records are so important. Do you wanna set the stage why these four elements are so important? Sure, I, I think this is part of our MedTAC approach to anything, and that is being prepared and being ready. And those four elements are important aspects or factors in our readiness plan. Uh, certainly having a medical power of attorney that allows parents or guardians to have access to medical records and to be involved in care decisions for our young adults who may be off at college or away in their first job is so important because the laws are different in various states and parents may or may not have access or the ability to participate in care decisions for their children in those circumstances. You and I have discussed that we were surprised that there was a great function in most smartphones to notify those who we select to be the, notified in case of emergency and why it's so important that we reach them or they are reached during an emergency because of that golden hour. Do you want to expand on why that's so important? Sure, I think uh, anything we can do to leverage our technology to help in our readiness plan is, is great and we should we should use it. The ability to use a function in our smartphone that will easily notify our important contacts about a serious event uh, is something that we should use to expand our 
notification and care plan for for our individuals who are you know at risk for having major medical issues you and i and our families by the nature of your daughter's theatrical expertise and gift and my son in competitive surfing we have to travel to other locations uh, so do you want to just emphasize why it's so important that we know in our own community where to go if there's an emergency, the level one trauma center if possible, uh, and knowing where those are when we travel to other locations? Sure, I think it's always part of our preparedness plan to know what resources are available to us when we need them. At the time of emergency is not the time to try to figure that out. And so some pre-planning to understand what resources are available, where you would go, what things you might need is an important part of our safety plan. Certainly if there is a significant injury, calling 911 will mobilize our professional first responders and they will know where those facilities are, but for less than those severe traumatic incidents, if we wanna seek healthcare on our own, we should know where those facilities are in the immediate area, certainly in our hometown, but certainly while traveling. As you know, uh, Ed, both of us have a real passion for making sure we get the medical records. As a retired cancer doctor, and you are a currently practicing critical care doctor for cancer patients, and how important the medical history is, not only for cancer, for other diseases. Um, you want to underscore why it's so important that uh, we have a, our medical history, uh, if we've had comprehensive treatment or chronic conditions or whatever on our phone and, and make that available to emergency medicine doctors? Absolutely. You know, uh, our patients are much more involved in their care than they have been in many years, and the advent of electronic health records makes that much easier to access that information. But when you need to seek help from a healthcare provider, it's really important to have access to those records so that your medical allergies, your medications, your previous medical problems and treatments are readily available. And especially if you are seeking emergency care, that is so helpful to the emergency providers. And so it's easy now to perhaps generate a PDF form with that information to carry on your person or on your smart device so that it's readily available to those providers if you need it. Well, thank you, Dr. Boats. We look forward to digging into each one of these issues. And again, uh, uh, we know you're on duty today and thank you for your contribution. Thank you. So Dr. Boats has really been our North Star on the clinical development of our work. Uh, he also, in addition to his work in critical care, uh, uh, he and periodically rides Life Flight and teaches nurses and uh, doctors in training, but also has done a, a full fellowship at Stanford University on simulation, which is uh, one of the tools that we all need to use to train. So let's go through this a little, little bit more detail. Uh, we're going to be listening to Gunita uh, Singh, an attorney, and we know we have John Nanson, who's also an attorney. The medical power of attorney is a, a document, depends on the state. You can download them from many of the health departments have them or some of our larger organizations. After I learned about the, the, this gap that we had uh, in the states of California, New Jersey, New York, uh, Colorado, we found uh, some very good ones. 
Secondly, we've been doing research and we'll be doing more research on smartphone uh, functionality, but with the smartphone functionality, we know with that, and we don't want to promote any one of the phones, but some of the mo more common phones that we all use, the Apple phone and the other and other phones, we've been finding that if they don't have the functionality, you can download apps that then can notify automatically if you dial 911 or SOS, they will notify your ca in case of emergency. Absolutely critical. Secondly, in talking to the manufacturers, they are getting notified re routinely that when these things happen, it also shows your location. So there have been people in car accidents where they probably couldn't have found the car. Uh, and this golden hour is absolutely critical that they that that uh, that they actually showed their location. Uh, the level one, level two, level three trauma centers, the more sophisticated centers are critically important for those that are immunocompromised, and we need to know their medical records and, and taking a family member or senior to a more sophisticated uh, hospital system with the bench strength to be able to handle more comprehensive issues absolutely critical and the same for kids. And then the medical record issue that, doc, that Dr. Boats uh, uh, and I just visited. So uh, what we're going to do is we'll go through each one of these topics uh, and, uh, and talk a little bit more detail with uh, Gunita Singh uh, on these. When we look at the smartphone notification, uh, there are short video clips. We're going to be posting them. We'll probably be producing them to be able to show you uh, what you can do there. And you can also go on maps. There are maps uh, that you can find that will show you where uh, level one, level two, level three trauma centers are. I'm definitely going to be doing that now as I go and travel with my son and surfing competitions because that is a dangerous, somewhat dangerous sport. And you want to know where to go if you have that kind of uh, uh, issue going on. So this is what a screen capture of the smartphone actually looks like with the black background. So don't let it fool you. you yours might be white. Some people uh, will, will uh, want to spare their eyes all the bright light. And basically, in the Apple phone, go to settings, go to medical ID, click on health, and then you can then uh, 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 move to emergency contacts. And as you, as you see on the bottom of the, the cell phone uh, on the far right, uh, add emergency contact. And in uh, text, you will read, your emergency contacts will receive a message saying you have called emergency services when you use emergency SOS. Your current location will be included. Now, what's important with our college students, and David and Pavita, as we work with young people, and Randy, as we work with young people, that means that we need to teach kids in sororities and in fraternities and on sports teams Call 911 from the victim's phone so that they're in case of emergency folks get notified because they won't if you're not if you're dial it from another phone. Um, this medical record access issue is really, really critical. Um, and uh, as an engineer, my work is in systems engineering, and we try to reconcile lots of information in a memorable way. And uh, Randy, your father, and, and you might share just briefly your experience as a, as a young person and what led you into the emergency preparedness area, coming up with a systematic approach at search and recovery or in, in any area of emergency medicine will save time, save lives, and, and, and save money. So uh, we, I've put together a number of five rights frameworks. We don't have time today, but uh, Christopher Peabody, Toff Peabody uh, was my advisor. When I put together the five rights of emergency care, we have the video on our, uh, on our website, highly recommend it. 
But the five rights of medical records I put together when I was uh, had the honor of uh, chairing a committee in Washington to set national guidelines for hospitals and make them recommend and recommend them. So when we looked at getting medical records, they're really, really important issues. One is people need to know about ownership. You know that you can own them. You need to know that you can have access to them and how to get them how to communicate them, how to make sure to update them, and how to make them secure. So in our slide deck, you can go in more detail and read about each of these topics. But first thing is, is that a hospital may own the records, but you're legally entitled in all 50 states to get a copy, a full copy of your medical records. Uh, access is absolutely critical. We talked about the golden hour, but as a cancer doctor, I can tell you, absolutely vital for me to know the detail about pathology reports. Uh, my son's had a cardiac condition, being able to have prior EKGs to know whether surgery worked, didn't work, and what was a, 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 prior, a prior issue. Then communication of uh, breakdown is one of the major reasons for medical error in our hospitals today. Uh, absolutely critical. This is why I recommend everybody get three sets of medical records after a, a, a significant hospitalization or significant care. Sorry, I've got uh, uh, two, two four-legged associates here. Um, and the communication is absolutely vital to be able to, uh, to get those records. So having records having uh, imaging on disks are critical, and then updates to those medical records, uh, and then making sure that your yours are secure. Insurance fraud is an absolutely, it's a pandemic today where medical records are being used to fraudulently obtain, uh, 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 obtain drugs, opioids, but also uh, to impersonate someone and take advantage of their medical records. So that's a, a bit of a drill down on each area. So the four areas are, Number one, we need to have, have the medical um, uh, power of attorney and advanced directive, uh, depending on the state. Number two, uh, that we know that we can use our smartphone to automatically notify those who need to make decisions for us. Uh, the young man that was in the story uh, earlier mentioned had a, a head injury from a skateboard accident, and the delay in getting decisions that need to be made by neurosurgeons and heart surgeons and trauma surgeons that golden hour is absolutely vital. So important to have that smartphone connection if you can. The third is, is to know where the major trauma centers are near your campus, near your home, or where you're traveling, especially if you're traveling in Europe or wherever, where would I go if I were involved in a car accident or my family got really sick? And then the fourth element was uh, these medical records. So now we're going to hear from another wonderful attorney uh, who's going to give her perspective uh, uh, on uh, these uh, four issues. Thank you very much for your help today, Ganita. It is uh, fabulous that you'll take a few moments and give us the perspective as a well-trained attorney, also in this young adult age group. Um, my first question is regarding the value of a medical power of attorney for those that are over 18. And you work in a field of uh, the FOIA and, and you know how important it is to have documentation and proper documentation. Can you tell us your feeling regarding medical powers of attorney? Absolutely. And thank you so much for the thoughtful question. It's extraordinarily timely during the COVID-19 pandemic where young people like myself have really come face to face with, with death and mortality in a, in a cultural way that I just don't think that this generation has before. So it's a really important question. 
Um, my thoughts on this are very, very strong. And as an attorney, um, I, I, I took a really strong interest in the Terry Schiavo case. And I want to talk just for a few moments about it because some of the viewers may have been too young to, to have been following what was going on in her case. But she was just 26 years old when she suffered from a cardiac arrest that left her in that persistent vegetative state. And for seven years, her husband and her parents were enmeshed in these uh, emotionally taxing and, and lengthy and financially draining legal battles because she didn't have that documentation. And of course, you know, one might think she was 26. That's not where her head was at. But you know what? It's really never too young to start thinking about those things and to just inform yourself about what sorts of options you have when considering those, those end of life decisions. And you know, I'm I'm in my late 20s right now, but I decided during the pandemic, during the pandemic actually, when I started to think about these issues, um, I need to have my advance directive in place and my power of attorney in place. So I got that notarized and and dealt with. You know, I reached out to an attorney who specializes in that. And now I can tell you I have a lot more peace of mind just knowing I have those papers in my house and you know, I've alerted my family to their existence if God forbid we're ever in that situation. Well, thank you very much. What a thoughtful answer. My second question is regarding the use of our smartphones. Our smartphones are evolving all the time, and we know that those that have dominant market share have a function where if you dial 911 on the phone, that if you turn the switch on, it will automatically notify who you wish to be notified. We call them ICE. You're in case of emergency contacts. These will evolve. We're not recommending any one phone, but if your phone has that functionality, how important is it to be able to have that kind of authorization if you couple that with the medical power of attorney? Well, I think the most important thing is it's obviously, it's uncomfortable sometimes to be thinking about your mortality in these ways and to be thinking about those worst case scenarios. But the blessing about living in 2021 is we have all of this technology around us at any given moment. And I, in my, in my profession, I think a lot about how we can leverage the power of technology to enhance the public's right to know through the FOIA. So what about uh, leveraging the power of technology when it comes to your own agency and your own decisions over your healthcare and your own ability to maximize the, um, uh, your ability to get the proper care in those worst case scenarios. So I'm absolutely personally going to be exploring that option on my own phone because I only recently became aware of it, but I'm honestly excited to know that that's an option and I hope that y'all are too. Fantastic. Um, another critical issue is that of knowing the healthcare providers in our community. Uh, we've known each other a long time. Your father's one of the most brilliant men in healthcare that I know. Uh, and uh, many of us are unaware of the importance of letting our family members and letting the general public know that there are different levels of care. There are five levels of care and a level one trauma center is where you really want to go if you have a serious medical emergency that has the bench strength of multiple specialties. Yet many of us travel and never think of that. How important do you think that is that we really make people aware of the fact that they should know near their campus or near their job or where they live where the medical providers are that could provide the best care for them and their family and friends, and then also do that for those that are traveling. Mm. Wow, it's so important. You know, I think 
the average person knows where their closest vet is, where their closest um, eyebrow threading places, <laughs> speaking from experience, their closest hairstylist. Um, and so few people I'm betting know where their closest hospital or trauma center is. And I really think that we need to be as proactive as possible, the same way that we tell our kids to look both ways when crossing the street, the same way that you know young women my age in particular know if you're walking late at night, maybe you don't have the music on too loud so you can be you know, aware of your surroundings. I'm hoping that this awareness of where is my closest hospital in my neighborhood, if I'm going on a trip somewhere, is just going to become part of that instinctual, okay, it's on my checklist. This is something that I know is important for my well-being and the well-being of my family. Fantastic. You deal in the area of records, in legal records and acquiring critical information. Sometimes we say that the most valuable thing we have is our medical history. And for young people, you may not have a long medical history, but there may be features that are personal that you may not want to share with your friends then and, and your colleagues, but might be really critical to emergency care. And we're recommending that people put a clinical resume or a summary of their medical history, even if you're very healthy, uh, in a place on your phone that's accessible in case there uh, might be an accident or serious uh, condition that would uh, prompt them to be at an emergency department. How important uh, do you believe that having that accessible information is knowing that we've got all kinds of barriers like HIPAA and others that keep us from sharing vital information that might be critical in that golden hour after an accident? Yeah, you know, I think it's extraordinarily crucial to once again leverage the power of technology to ensure that we are in the best position to really take ownership of our healthcare and our well being in those critical moments. And I think that having an easily accessible file on your phone that lists, you know, your personal medical history, maybe some important information about your family history, should it be relevant in one of those situations, is a great idea. And just for some perspective for folks who may be a little bit reticent or uncomfortable with that idea, think about how much we publicize about our lives on a daily basis about the most you know, mundane things from what bagel you had in the morning to what party you went to the other night. But what about taking real ownership of your health and your well-being in those critical moments? If it just takes me five to 10 minutes to you know, list those crucial um, facts about my own um, disposition or the fact that as an Indian, I'm, you know, predisposed to, to heart disease. Just having that basic information in case it's relevant on your phone, you don't know what kind of difference it can make in those critical moments. So I say go for it. Thank you so much. And we are so appreciative of your help and your thoughtful uh, support and how you're helping young people as well with their careers. And uh, we just thank you for your commitment to help others. Anytime. Thank you so much. So uh, now we, what we want to do is give our panel a chance to, to comment, and we'll start with uh, Chief Adcox uh, at uh, MD Anderson. Uh, Chief Adcox uh, is uh, uh, what we really believe one of the pioneers of threat, threat safety science and healthcare, uh, a real tr a leader at one of the top centers uh, uh, in the world, the leading cancer center in the world, and he aspires with his hundreds of uh, officers 
and staff and uh, and protects uh, tens of thousands of people at Texas Medical Center at the same level of expertise that uh, MD Anderson delivers in cancer care. Chief Adcox, your reaction to what you're hearing is somebody who's uh, uh, got leads first responders, but also somebody who's a threat ex expert. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham, and uh, I'm so happy to be part of this program. What wonderful information you put out. Um, I think that the thing that I that I would really stress is um, when we talk about those the four key points to, to medical power of attorney, your medical information, ICE, et cetera, is is really is to have the checklist and be focused on having a, both a a personal as well as a family plan. When we're in my business in, in police work, when we when we deal with our executives, we do a lot of advanced planning, and all this stuff is second nature to us. We know which roadways we're gonna take if the executive gets hurt. We know where the trauma one center is. We already have all the medical data, all the medical information on the, on the per person we're with. Uh, we, we already know um, all the key facts that we need to know to make sure that we can get this individual help, including the next of kin, the notification part. Uh, I did that back when I was in the city. Uh, when we had presidential visits, we worked with the federal government. Um, I'm dating myself and we did uh, President Clinton's visit to our, uh, our home, my hometown. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, pre-work that gets done uh, you know, well in advance, more well beyond protection, but how are you going to take care of a medical emergency with, with an individual? We need to take those same principles and apply them to our families. And that's going to be critical is just be prepared have a plan, have a personal safety plan and an executive plan for, for everybody in your family. And I think, I think just doing that is gonna make you much, much safer. Um, great information, thank you very much. I, I recommend people listen to, to the uh, webinar over and over again until you get as much as you need. Go to the websites, uh, get all the information. It, it's there, it's available, it's free. Uh, let's, let's protect each other, let's protect our families. Thank you very much, Chief. And uh, we've uh, kept the invitation volume to low uh, so that we could pre-record this program. But for those that are watching, which are a much bigger group that will watch, be watching uh, on demand, uh, they'll be able to read an article regarding the topics that we've covered in the checklist. And secondly, people might wonder, well, you're covering immune compromised, the seniors and the children, all the experts we're talking to, believe that this emergency checklist is the very first thing to focus on before we dig down, which we're going to do in a couple of minutes with Dr. Peabody. So these are critical to do for anyone in your family with uh, with those. And uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, your collaboration on the article that'll be coming out in the next three to four weeks. And it'll be posted for the bigger audience that will be watching it. Um, I'd like to move to Randy Steiner. Randy is the uh, Director of Emergency Response at the University of California, Irvine. He's also a best-selling author author of a book uh, that he wrote regarding an experience he had as a child uh, in a plane crash. And his dad led uh, our country, actually, in being able to respond to trauma. And so, uh, Randy, thank you so much. Uh, you're also a scout leader and a great leader in our community. Your thoughts regarding what we're seeing here, and you're responsible for responding uh, for tens of thousands of students at uh, one of our great universities. Yeah, thank you, Chuck, and it's thank you for the honor once again of being part of this program. This is such an important um, project that that we're all all involved in. It's really going to have a, a positive impact, I think, on on everything having to surround this COVID and beyond. 
Um, yeah, you know, you, you mentioned that the you know my father's uh, being a, a key contributor to the advancement of advanced trauma life support, which is a standard of care for uh, the you know, acute trauma all across the world. Really, it's been adopted. You know, the, the, this system um, in in many places all through the world, and you know, it ties in the way that ties in. I think what we're talking about here is you know the, the, this planning process that ATLS was based on a few very, very simple concepts. So first of all, simplicity, you know, simplifying the process, um, making things, you know, getting the, the, the out of the weeds, as we say, in emergency management and, and you know, latching on to those simple concepts. That applies to this, this ICE method as well. Um, you know, we're not going to have the, the uh, Chief Adcox talked about the checklists and the importance of these checklists, you know, are, are, are key to, to, to so many things. But odds are we're not going to have that checklist right in front of us when the time comes for us to have to implement our plan. So keeping that plan simple and easy to you know remember and and keeping the you know the steps more to, at a conceptual level. You know I'm a, I'm also a CPR instructor and that's how I train my classes is instead of making them or you know being dependent on remembering the ABCs and and all those. I really try to teach the concepts of what they're doing. You know when they're doing chest compressions or rescue breathing or, or those. It seems to have a, a much better effect for when they have to actually, in a panic situation, have to implement what they're being taught. They're remembering those concepts. It's easier for them to take the steps and do, do it properly. Um, you know, part of uh, the, the, the inception of ATLS too is that, you know, that nothing key to that whole concept was there's really no huge innovations. You know, since then, this was back in 1980 when, when ATLS really, uh, became, you know, the first uh, surgeons and doctors got certified in it. Um, but for the most part, the, the steps in the process were not created because of ATLS. They were all things that were already there. Um, you know, what ATLS did was standardize those processes, take those different pieces that were already existing and pull them together. And that's, we have to do that, you know, that's all part of all of our planning. It's, we don't have to recreate the wheel on these. These concepts that we're talking about are, are out there. It's just a matter of pulling them together in a in a way that we can turn around and easily implement them, put them in, in a plan. And then finally, you know, once that plan is there, we have this family plans and and you know a, a strategy to to protect ourselves and our families and other people in the communities. You know, practice that plan. Make sure that we know you know where those those resources are that we need and how to access those resources. Um, just having a plan written down. You know, I've been uh, uh, in a lot of different response situations in my time in emergency management, and, and none of those situations were, was the plan pulled out. You know, say, oh, let's see what the plan says. The checklists were, you know, the, the resources were, but, you know, the, the having a plan and setting it aside saying, okay, we're good, isn't good enough. We have to know what's in that plan. We have to practice that plan. So that's a really important part of that. So thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you so much, Randy. And uh, what a great uh, segue uh, to John Nance, who is uh, one of our, uh, just a national treasure. He has done so much for us in patient safety. He is, uh, is a former captain of one of our great airlines, 
He's uh, a JD. He's a, he's a, a best-selling author in both uh, in uh, both fiction and nonfiction, um, and I've had the honor of working with uh, John for years and and writing articles that uh, helped apply some of the aviation principles that you've just uh, described, Randy, uh, that are so critical. And you know, as a as a private jet pilot with far less hours than John, um, uh, I knew what the red lines were on the engine fire checklist for a citation, but I didn't know the entire manual when that happened. And as you say, having those checklists and practice are so important. John, uh, would you please share with us your reaction to what you're hearing? And then we're going to talk with our younger, uh, uh, our younger colleagues are going to help lead our community. And then we're going to dig into the specifics of immune compromise. Uh, John, your, your thoughts? Well, first of all, this is an excellent program, and uh, everything that's been said is of incredible value. This, I'm glad it's being recorded. Should be listened to over and over again. But there's one, uh, there are a couple of things I want to address. When we're talking about the necessity, for instance, for being a good chief family officer and for getting everybody involved, we're running up against something that has uh, plagued even the Air Force uh, in, in my experience in the past, which is when you say safety, people start snoozing. It's really a matter of sitting people down and saying, you know, did you ever make a list going to the grocery store? If so, then you know what a checklist is, because a checklist is something that you, of items you don't want to forget. And of course, you can take it as we do in the aviation and say every item on a checklist that is supposed to be memorized or an emergency part of a checklist is there because somebody died to demonstrate the fact that you don't want to forget these things. A checklist shouldn't go 20 or 30 pages. We've dealt with this in medicine. And uh, there are a lot of doctors who still say, you know, why should I use a checklist? Well, because they're killer items that you don't want to trip over. That's on a family basis, a really good way of explaining that this is a very routine matter. It's not a, some convoluted, you know, now dad's going to be Mr. Safety or mom's going to be Mrs. Safety. But we're going to sit down and talk about what happens if. That's why we put smoke detectors in a house. That's why we have uh, fire extinguishers in a house. And, and talking about that in a more realistic way, I think is extremely important. And for kids, it sets a good beginning for later in life being able to focus on these things. Uh, of course, as a lawyer, uh, when we talk about the, uh, the advanced directives, that's incredibly important. And yet it's one of those things that even I as a lawyer, sometimes uh, I have to, did I do it? Did I, am I current on everything? You know, the old phrase of the worst shot is the shoemaker. And I'm afraid that's, uh, that's true for a lot of us. Uh, but the other aspect of this too is the use of technology. Uh, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what we can do with this. The 911 call, the, adva the advanced uh, placement of the ICE uh, uh, order into your phone, whatever the uh, model is to where it will call somebody. And those are extremely important. And I know college students, of course, don't want to have a, a rope around their necks. They don't necessarily have these things uh, keyed in. And yet it's incredibly important when they get in trouble. They don't have time to do anything else other than squeeze the phone, which, by the way, many of them don't know that that's how you can dial 911. So in, in retrospect, Everything that you've been saying on this program is incredibly valuable, but I think it needs to be taken in context of the fact that anything to do with safety is a hard sell unless you are in the middle of a crisis or you've just experienced one. This is something everyone needs to take responsibility for talking to each other about, especially in a family situation. 
Well, listen, John, thank you so much for your uh, boundless energy and just your, your persistent focus on this. We just need to hear from you over and over again. And thank you for all you do in our uh, community uh, internationally to focus on patient safety equality. You've been, you've just been uh, a lifesaver and thank you so much for that. We're, we're gonna come back to John here at the end, but what we wanna do now is uh, we're gonna shift gears to, and, and, and hear from uh, some of our uh, uh, young panelists. Uh, uh, Paul uh, uh, Batia is, uh, is kind of a bridge between the two uh, response groups because he is a professional EMT. He's the president of the Anteater um, uh, 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 Club and the association and actually delivering care as an EMT. So uh, reintroduce you there, Paul. Paul, thank you. You you kind of bridge over between our two groups uh, as a professional first responder, a pre-med student, uh, and also uh, you're, you're a movie star. We've seen you on TV and the, the news uh, as you led efforts uh, here in Orange County to put up the auxiliary hospitals. And um, you've been a, a wonderful champion and you've also been a great uh, instructor uh, with us uh, it, it, with our MedTech program. So um, it's just a delight to have you respond and kind of give your perspective, not only as a young adult and a pre-med student, but also as a professional first responder. Thank you, Dr. Dunham, for inviting me today. And I, I always learn a lot every time I'm, I'm a reactor in one of these programs. It's a, it's a really good experience. I do want to touch on the technology aspect of, of contacting those that uh, you want to contact in case of an emergency. So, you know, when I'm out in the field and I have a patient that's, you know, otherwise incapacitated, but otherwise pretty stable, I'm in a situation where I can call their family members, call their friends. And what I would often do is I'd look in their, in their phones or their walls to find that information if I can't ask them myself. And uh, my phone, I, you know, I, I try to check. I don't have that in case of emergency functionality. I could download an app, which I'm gonna be looking into. But what I have set up, and what I think a lot of smartphones have uh, as a functionality is the ability to, to just set your emergency contacts accessible without having to unlock the phone. I find that's pretty valuable when I have to contact family members in the case of an emergency. Great, thank you very much, Paul. We'll come back to you at the end. Uh, 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 thank you for and thank you for your service to the community. You've just done a terrific job uh, here in Orange County, and uh, and continue to. I was amazed at how many people that you've actually trained with the Stop the Bleed uh, program uh, and took that uh, leadership role to do that for uh, severe bleeding. Uh, our, our next panelist is Pavita Singh, who is uh, an international best-selling author. His, uh, she is a public health uh, expert, and she is uh, uh, pioneering and, and showing the way for our uh, young women uh, through a nonprofit. And uh, it's just a delight to have you, Pavita, at React. And you're also the sister of Gunita. And so the talent in the Singh family is uh, is extraordinary. Uh, and I wouldn't be too surprised after working with your dad for so many years that uh, uh, that he would have uh, such wonderful uh, daughters who are, are pioneering multiple areas of law and public health. Please react to this and you, you can kind of represent maybe what's important for our young people and especially our young women who you're helping. Absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for having both me and Gunita on this panel. It was awesome to uh, listen to her. She's always such a brilliant speaker. Um, and it's been wonderful listening to everybody on this panel. Um, would especially love to give a shout out to the young people on this panel. So I have been of the opinion for a long time, and this is also one of the premises behind my organization, Girls Health Ed, is that young people 
are honestly some of the most powerful people on this planet and oftentimes are just not given enough credit for for the impact that they can make on on themselves and on their own health and and in their communities and that's why i have so much appreciation for ad and admiration for the work that all of you are doing that charlie is doing that the other youth um, on this panel are doing to really help young people take ownership and empowerment over their personal well-being. So while we were listening to some of the other speakers, I was actually going through my phone and making sure that I had um, all of my medical records and medical health information updated uh, to the best of my capability. I'm going to be um, doing that in uh, more detail um, in a bit, but I think that's just uh, so important. And as my sister was saying, and as Paul was saying, just such a great tool that we have at our disposal. And you know, we never want to be in, in, in a type of emergency situation, but this is the privilege of living in 2021 and, and something that perhaps our ancestors just didn't have access to that we should consider ourselves lucky to have. Um, I also run a nonprofit organization that teaches health education workshops to girls and young women, and we have um, a section all about digital health and digital safety. And I believe that making sure your phone is up to date with personal health information, God forbid you do find yourself in an emergency is a critical part of, of digital health and digital safety. And so uh, from now, I'm gonna make sure that we do uh, present this information to the girls and young women whom we serve in our curriculum. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate you doing that. And for those that are on live today, we have two more speakers that we are going to take a deep dive in the immune compromised population and also our, our children. So we'll run longer than we, we tip, that we typically do live, and then we may edit things down. So we just want to let everybody know that uh, who are watching live. It's really a great pleasure to introduce David uh, Grinsfelder now, who is, uh, who is uh, uh, a wonderful young man. And and I think he is destined to do great things in the future. You'll see David uh, along uh, with our young adult and student outreach uh, uh, slide there. David uh, is a Berkeley grad. Uh, he's contemplating his future. He works with uh, Amazon Media, kind of a, an enviable opportunity to work with a great company and is contemplating a potential career in, in the law. And John, could you, could you mute? John, could you mute, please? So, so David, uh, we're delighted to have you join us today and, uh, and react to what we're hearing about what we could do for these vulnerable populations, including young people, before we now take a deep dive into specific immunocompromise and our children. Your thoughts for what you've heard uh, to date. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Denham, thank you so much for having me. And what an opportunity it's been to listen to people who are, who are experts in their field, but also are so eloquent and present the information in a way that has felt so digestible to me and to hopefully everyone who's listening. It's a, I've been taking notes the whole time because I consider it such an opportunity for myself. But um, one thing that really stood out to me and one thing that I love about MedTAC is the idea of prior preparedness and prior readiness, especially for you know younger people, which is not traditionally a group that many think of as being an at-risk group. Uh, it's so important to have these mechanisms in place place and have these processes set and ready to go. And this is a sentiment that I'm echoing from a lot of people who have already talked in it. But as a former college student, someone who maybe was exposed to more risk than I probably should have, it's, it's important to have these things ready for the off chance that something does happen. And that's never a thought that many people want to consider. It's something they assume won't happen to themselves. But 
we all know that you know crises can arise in the most random ways and at the most unexpected times. So to have mechanisms in place prior to the event itself, I think is an invaluable, invaluable thing to have. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to uh, 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 what uh, you all can share, uh, all of you with our uh, our future leaders. Uh, you know, there are so many of us uh, bald heads and gray heads that are, uh, are uh, on this program, but uh, you all are going to lead the charge for us in the future, and especially in technology and in media and uh, in the law and public health. It's a, it's a great pleasure to introduce now uh, Christopher Peabody. Uh, I met, I met Toph Peabody when I was at Harvard as an advanced uh, uh, leadership fellow. I was asked by David Gergen, you may see him on CNN periodically, was one of my co-chairs of the program that I was involved in. And uh, I was asked to go over and give a talk at the, the Kennedy Leadership School. Uh, and Toph Peabody was a third year medical student who had won a, a prestigious scholarship called the Zuckerman Scholarship where he uh, earned his MPH. Uh, during his third year of medical school, took a year off from UCSF and then came back to California. And uh, he is now an associate professor of emergency medicine. We've worked on many projects together. He's the director of the Innovation Center at UCSF, which is the ninth ranked medical center in the United States. Um, he is uh, uh, very talented and he's on duty today. So we've asked him to help us take a deep dive in now this immune compromise issue and what the CDC has told us about what are immune compromised patients. Today, we're not gonna cover boosters and we're not gonna cover some of the things that are evolving very rapidly, but let's just understand who in our community that we need to help who are immune compromised and then also seniors and kids. And then we'll have uh, a community pediatrician, a wonderful pediatrician, uh, Dr. Barto. then will be our last speaker. Dr. Peabody, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today on this critically important topic of the immunocompromised, our seniors uh, and our children, and why we really need to have uh, uh, attention to special care. Let's start off with the immunocompromised. When you describe to someone, a layperson, what that means, what do you, how do you describe it? Well, Chuck, I uh, describe it, immunocompromised just means that your immune system doesn't function like a normal immune system. Uh, the immune system is indeed compromised. It doesn't uh, uh, fight infection the same way that a immune competent person's immune system works. And so the CDC has defined who is moderately or severely immunocompromised when they talk about vaccines and vaccine boosters. Let's go through each one of them. So first off, active those in active treatment for solid tumor and hematologic malignancies, those under cancer treatment. What do we need to know about them when we think of emergency care? Well, remember that a lot of cancer treatments attack all growing cells. They attack um, especially uh, the immune cells. Um, of a patient. And so when your immune cells are attacked and by chemotherapies, for example, um, you can no longer fight infection as well as, um, as before those treatments. So when we see somebody in the emergency department who's actively on chemotherapy, we know to look uh, for opportunistic infections. We also know that they're at higher or greater risk from having complications from COVID. 
Great. And is it fair to say that in this group that we really need to adhere to the safe practices of distance, masking, uh, uh, disinfection of our hands and uh, contact surfaces and be even more vigilant? Fair statement? Oh, that's more than fair, Chuck. And I would say that is even uh, fair prior to COVID-19 um, in these populations. Um, you know, the immune compromised uh, community is at risk for a whole host of different types of infections. So infection control principles, like we've all learned during COVID, are things that we, sh we should be implementing all the time when these communities. So a second group CDC's identified are those in receipt of solid organ transplant and who are taking immunosuppressive therapy. What should we know about that? Well, I, I think, Chuck, the um, basics of uh, um, when somebody gets an, an organ transplanted um, from someone else, um, that the, we have to give medications so that the, um, the immune system doesn't attack that foreign organ. Um, and so um, by design, that patient is immune compromised. They're getting medications that um, uh, actually suppress the immune system so that that organ transplant um, will stay grafted. And so what's important about them is also important regarding those who have had uh, stem cell transplants. And the CDC says those within two years of transplantation or taking immunosuppressive therapy. So uh, uh, both those groups uh, are equally important to you and you want to know about them when you see them in the emergency department? Oh, absolutely. If uh, somebody is having any, any type of a, a treatment that makes them immune compromised, stem cell transplant being one extreme, um, then we have to know about that um, in the emergency department, um, especially uh, to take the proper um, infection control measures that you've mentioned. But also we, it, it enables us to think uh, much broader about what may be going on with this patient because they don't have an uh, immune system that's functioning normally. CDC mentions the moderate or severe primary immunodeficiency, and the examples they provide are DeGeorge syndrome and Westcott-Aldrich uh, syndrome. Can you kind of frame those for our, for our general public? Sure. I, I think for, uh, you know, in general, there are some genetic disorders um, uh, that actually have compromised immune systems, um, and these are two of them. Uh, these are two syndromes that, uh, that where your immune system is uh, constantly compromised. And so um, folks that do have these disorders or their family members usually know to alert medical personnel right away um, when they have these. But uh, again, infection, infection control measures, like we've mentioned, um, there's some special things that physicians need to think about um, when these syndromes are presented to the um, patients with these syndromes present to the emergency department. So another area CDC discusses are those with advanced or untreated HIV infections. Um, do you wanna frame those for us? Advanced HIV is, uh, is, again, your immune system does not work properly. You're at very high risk for opportunistic infections, the infections that normal immune systems are able to clear very easily. And so uh, those with advanced HIV are, um, at very high risk for um, getting complications from COVID-19, but they're also at very high risk from getting other opportunistic infections um, that, uh, that normal um, hosts, normal immune systems are um, able to clear easily. Um, these can be certain fungal infections. 
They can be certain um, other types of infections uh, that are not um, usually in the general public. And so, yes, we need to um, know about the uh, person's um, HIV status, and we need to know um, certain things about uh, their immune system um, prior to treatment. And lastly, uh, the CDC describes a, a, a very large group of conditions that I'll read for you and then maybe have you react to them. Uh, those in active treatment with high dose corticosteroids greater than uh, 20 milligrams of prednisone or equivalent today or, or per day, alkylating agents, uh, antimetabolites, transplant related immunosuppressive drugs, cancer chemotherapeutic agents uh, that are classified as severely immunosuppressive, tumor necrosis blockers and other biologic agents that are immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory. Um, how would you kind of frame that? That's kind of a pretty big group. Yeah, and, it, and I couldn't see that being an intimidating list uh, for folks who may not be in the medical community. So I think the main takeaway from that list is that if you're on a medication that's um, designed to alter your immune system, um, that's something that could potentially mean that you're in this immunocompromised category. And, um, and some of these are typical medications that we prescribe to, to folks with, uh, for example, asthma exacerbations. Um, you'll be put on prednisone for three or four days. Now, that's not the same thing as taking it for a very long time for other disorders, um, which would put you in that immune compromise category. So I don't want people to look at that list and be scared. Like I took prednisone um, once or twice um, throughout my life um, and I see this and now I'm at higher risk for um, COVID complications or other, um, or other opportunistic infections. But those um, patients that are on long-term steroids or long-term other immune uh, uh, modulating medic medications as described in this list, um, do need to alert their healthcare professionals and clinicians when they see them in the emergency department or any other care setting. Um, and also need to take those extra precautions that we've talked about um, for infection control, especially against COVID. Fantastic, Toph. And um, I'm sure that you would want to remind us, as you have with the five rights of emergency uh, medical care, that it's critical that they bring, when we're bringing somebody in who's immunocompromised, it's so great if we have all their medications and whatever medical records that they have available, a fair statement? This is uh, incredibly important, Chuck. And it's uh, especially in, in, the, in the populations we just mentioned, we need details um, if possible. We need a full medication list. Um, we need, a, uh, we need uh, a great list of past medical history and any, um, any recent treatments, especially for those patients that we mentioned up front, the patients that are getting chemotherapy for their cancer therapy, et cetera. We need to know the last date of their chemotherapy. Um, we, need to know, um, we need to know those, those uh, granular details. So bringing in a list or bringing in a um, note from the physician um, uh, from their previous visits would be incredibly helpful. Fantastic. Toph, we are now more than 18 months uh, uh, into this pandemic and probably heading towards an endemic state where we'll be dealing with the variants in this virus for some time. 
what can you share with us about uh, helping seniors? Because we know that they're a very vulnerable population just due to their age, but they also have comorbidities. Uh, what do we know now about bringing in our senior to, or if we are seniors, uh, coming into the emergency department? I think the, the number one thing that we can do for our seniors is, uh, is be vaccinated ourselves. So if we're, if we're interacting with, uh, with, um, with our seniors, our loved ones, and we're unvaccinated, we are putting them at undue risk for getting a severe COVID infection. Seniors are, um, are at risk for getting severe COVID um, in, uh, uh, infections. Um, uh, even despite vaccination check um, with the Delta variant. And uh, I think that uh, folks should know uh, that if somebody needs to come to the emergency department, um, they should not feel scared to go. Um, please come to the emergency department when you need to come. Um, for example, um, we've had uh, um, seniors, um, especially that have had um, uh, heart attack symptoms and they've waited uh, a, a few days um, with, with crushing chest pain and came too late uh, to the emergency department for fear of getting COVID, uh, for fear of, uh, of overcrowding the emergency department because of what we've been going through with COVID-19. And I would submit to you, Chuck, that, um, that we want to see folks when they need to come to the emergency department because that's our mission. We want to, we want to see you when you're having your emergency. When you're coming to the emergency department, please know that you will be asked to wear a mask. Please know that there's state mandates um, uh, regarding visitation that are um, different by state by state. So please come with, uh, with uh, information on how to contact you if you are a loved one. And give it to the um, registration clerk, have them put it in the chart, say how you would like to be um, uh, uh, contacted by your physician care team um, when, when your loved one is in the emergency department, sometimes alone, um, unfortunately, um, because, uh, because of these uh, COVID-19 visitor restrictions that we're imposing to, prevent, uh, to enable a safe environment for all patients in the emergency department. Tough. I know that both of us believe in having the boosters. I've had my booster. What's your pitch or your PSA pitch to our seniors or those who have seniors in their families regarding the boosters, whether they've had the infection or not? The most effective tool against COVID-19 is vaccination. There's no doubt about it, Chuck. We can have all the types of therapeutics you want in the world, but prevention uh, what is it, the, this, the phrase, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure or something? It's, uh, it's uh, if we can do these things up front, um, and I will include the booster shots in this for our seniors, it looks like the evidence is uh, great, uh, that it's more protective, um, the vaccines are safe. Uh, we've given millions and millions of shots not in this country alone and have a great surveillance system uh, to look for uh, side effects. And these are safe vaccines. Um, and these vaccines are saving lives and they are saving seniors' lives. Um, and so I encourage everyone to get the booster. I just got my booster um, yesterday because I, I'm a frontline healthcare worker. And uh, uh, despite a slightly sore arm, um, I feel great. And, uh, and uh, my family's relieved because I have um, greater protection. Fantastic, fantastic. Let's shift gears. You're not a pediatrician. 
but you're an emergency medicine doctor. You're uh, on faculty at one of our great medical centers. You have to see all comers who come through the door. Um, what would you like families to understand about children and COVID? Well, Chuck, I'm uh, not only uh, do I treat children in the emergency department, I also have two young children. And so um, uh, like many families that are uh, watching, um, I've constantly had to make risk assessments with my own kids. And um, I cannot wait for the vaccine to get approved. Um, I will be first in line to get my children vaccinated. I think this is the one way that we can protect our children. Um, besides the great um, uh, pr uh, procedures that we've been able to um, implement in our, in our family. Um, my four-year-old uh, wears a mask uh, when she's out and about with, uh, at her school. Um, all the children in their, in their preschool wear, wear masks. And guess what? They're doing great. And uh, I encourage um, uh, families to take the proper precautions to do your own risk assessments on, on uh, how to interact with others. But children do need to interact with uh, with other people, with other children. And um, my my daughter has uh, um, been um, loving uh, preschool and getting to to getting a little bit out of the isolation that we had during lockdown. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I will feel more comfortable as a parent and as a physician once our pedi pediatric community is vaccinated. And I think we can take a bigger sigh of relief after that. Well, thank you, Toth. You've been wonderfully generous with your advice. It's so pertinent, and I think it'll be so well received by the essential critical worker families and the general public and those of us that are serving our communities as you are. So thank you very much. Well, Chuck, thanks for everything you're doing for our community, especially during COVID and uh, keeping us up to date with all this information. Thank you, sir. So uh, Dr. Peabody uh, is a, a terrific uh, leader who's really given us uh, uh, a lot of benefit through this uh, crisis. Uh, I implore you to watch the five rights of emergency care, which we produced. It's on our website, and it will help you with your immune compromise, your seniors and your kids, as if you have to go to the emergency department and then you uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and need the care. Our final speaker, is, uh, is Dr. Uh, Bartow, uh, and Dr. Bartow is uh, a community uh, pediatrician. I've had the benefit of knowing her since she was a young lady before she went to medical school. She is a terrific uh, leader in, the, in her own community and answers some of the uh, really important questions that we need to know about kids. Brittany, thank you so much for your continued support of our families and those who are the essential critical infrastructure workers and many of the general public who found out about our program and love to learn alongside those families. You've been just terrific the, the, over the whole course of that crisis. Um, my first question is, we're maybe we've seen the peak of the Delta surge in some communities and uh, we may have another surge by the year end by some of the forecasters. Um, uh, what are the typical questions that you're asked as a community pediatrician today? What are the questions you're asked? And then what are your answers? Sure. So a lot of people are asking, you know, how serious is this Delta wave versus other COVID waves? Um, and I let them know that, you know, Delta was a lot more contagious. 
and we need to be really vigilant, continue to be vigilant about our masking. But thankfully, the studies do indicate it's not more serious in kids. So we are seeing larger volumes because it's more contagious, but there's not more complications. There isn't, you know, an increased risk of hospitalization with this versus with the previous ones. That being said, because it's contagious and it continues to still be dangerous, I recommend, you know, masking in indoor places. I'm fully behind masking in schools, which is require or required in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, as well as California, um, and to continue to make safe choices. We still have a significant risk, albeit small, but any risk of uh, MISC. Can you describe MISC and what we need to know about that today? Sure. So MISC is, we think, a post-inflammatory response to the COVID infection. And what's tricky about it is it you can have a very mild COVID infection and still have this. It's something that occurs four to six weeks from the COVID infection, and it it usually presents with fever and some mix of um, rash, belly pain, conjunctivitis, feeling very ill. These are kids who would be in the hospital anyway, so it's not subtle. But um, once they're in and they do the workup, it's something to consider. We're heading towards a holiday season of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. What advice are you giving families regarding uh, upcoming gatherings and holidays? So it's it's continuing to make safe choices. So if you're going to be with older people who maybe don't have a strong immune system, it's recommended. I would recommend everyone be vaccinated if you're going to be mixing, especially with other families um, and you know, I try not to get too big or being or doing too many things that are like out in indoor spaces or anything like that. So stay out of indoor spaces if you can, the ventilation and aerosol risk and masking. And one of the things that we've discovered is that cloth masks are not very helpful and that the medical procedure masks, the ASTM level threes and a well-fitting N95 mask is important, but the three Fs that we kind of talk about are filter, fit, and finish. Um, are, you, are you pretty much an advocate of making sure if you could upgrade the, the, the better masks to do so and make sure they fit well? Yes, I've been recommending, recommending that to all my family members, as well as patients I see in the office. And then my, you know, surgical masks are KN95 for kids that are pretty well fitted and smaller for their faces. So that's a good alternative to the homemade cloth mask at this point. What's your advice to those uh, in our, their te our teens and young adults regarding boosters? For, so at this point, the CDC recommends boosters in immunocompromised. Um, if you have a, you know, an underlying medical condition that puts you at higher risk for COVID, or if you're in a profession that's higher risk, like um, being a doctor, I got my booster last week. Um, because I'm in a high-risk profession. So if you fall within those categories, it's recommended to get a booster. And it's pretty reasonable. I mean, if you're in a job where you're being exposed all the time to the general public in a poorly ventilated space, uh, mm -hmm. I would probably advise a family member or uh, a young person to talk to their physician, but to see if that might be a recommendation and, and that they may, that might be a reasonable approach. Is that a fair statement? Yes, definitely. Talk to your doctor about if you'd qualify based on your underlying conditions or your profession. What's your take on the approval and then moving forward with vaccination of the next younger age group that's being in consider that's being considered right now? 
I'm very excited. Um, I have two kids under 12. So if, you know, they just submitted the data recently, if they submit, um, like if, if the FDA authorizes it to be approved for kids and they, you know, look over the data and they find that it's safe, I'm absolutely getting it for my children. So Brittany, what about pregnant females? What are you advising your young moms? I'm sure you see them coming in and asking general questions about, mm -hmm. uh, although you're not uh, an OB, you're actually gonna probably take care of their kids. What are you telling the pregnant females regarding vaccines? So they have found Brittany, that pregnant so women have a lot more severe infection with COVID and it puts the mother and the baby at risk. So all of the major um, associations, ACOG, which is the OB, um, the AEP, the CDC are all recommending that pregnant women get vaccinated. If you've already had your baby and you're breastfeeding, it's recommended that you get vaccinated so that you can provide antibiotics to your baby through the breast milk as well. And, and this would be even in spite of the fact that uh, someone might have had the COVID infection. So, yes. you know, framing the issue up, if you've had the COVID infection, you would still recommend vaccines and boosters uh, the way that the CDC is recommending them, regardless of whether you've had a prior infection. Is that correct? Yes. So there's a lot of, it's unreliable if you're, you know, some people have antibodies that last longer than others. So if you've had infection, we don't know if you're the one that's going to have antibodies that last. So it's recommended to get that booster to make sure that your body gets a good immune response and you can fight out the infection if exposed again. Fantastic. Brittany, you've been terrific. We really appreciate the practical advice you've been giving us. Oh, yeah, it was great. So Dr. Bartow has really uh, helped us uh, tremendously throughout this 18-month period with a lot of the practical issues. Uh, we are going to go to our panel, but we are some of our concluding thoughts are what we're trying to do with MedTech is that the, the CDC provides uh, us the what. Uh, and what we try to do with MedTech is to provide the how. So our goal is to do that. So for those of you that are submitting questions and uh, on our online programs, please let us know what we can help answer regarding those issues. We think that it's absolutely critical to turn the science into safety, and that's the focus of, uh, of the work that we're doing. We think that we can turn that safety into success. So the final thoughts are, um, we're often asked, uh, if I'm vaccinated, can I catch it? These are the most important questions. Can I catch it? Can I spread it? Can I get sick? And can I get long haul? Currently, it's yes to every one of those questions. And that's why it's so critically important that we maintain what we call our, our safe practices. I think the term measures is a hard thing for the public to understand, but it's much easier to understand that what we're trying to do with masks and distance and exposure to these things uh, is that uh, the, the activities that, what, that we are trying to uh, adhere to uh, are these, and these are the measures that are critically important. So as we go back to our panel, it's important for us to understand that public health has to make trade-offs for populations but you don't have to. You would pay more to spare your family from harm. So what we're telling uh, everyone and in our prior webinars is we need to assess the threats, assess the risk, and understand uh, the fact that there's a certain threat in your community. It's a balance of the infection rate and the community immunity. You want to look at your vulnerability 
Who do you have that might be immune compromised? What about your seniors in the home, multi-generational families, and also your children? And then be able to then look at the risk. Your risk is really the factor of multiplying those together. So uh, I might uh, have a greater risk in my home if my mom, who just passed away, who's in one of the prior slides, um, uh, who passed away at 100, uh, she would be at greater risk likely some morbidity, comorbidities, and due to her age and immune system, and I have a, a son who's 15, uh, who also is at higher risk. So I would behave differently, more di and in a different way, Randy, if I bring him to UCI for some kind of a program for high school students, than maybe somebody that didn't have those things. So as we kind of think about our goal of reducing the vulnerability that's that's our goal to do to tackle this uniquely so uh let me come back to uh to you uh uh um uh, randy as since i mentioned your name um as we look at what we've just discussed we've got a population of immune compromised folks that are flowing through uci right now we have seniors that are flowing through uci then we have uh, students and young people that might have a potential higher risk. Uh, your thoughts as an emergency response professional and, and what's important to families, your advice to families of essential critical workers of which you circulate all the time. You know, obviously, you know, taking the same steps we've been taking, you know, is, masks are still an effective way to protect people from the transmission of, of the virus. And, and you know, at UCI, our, our first responders are still out there in the public and, you know, wearing those those face coverings to, to, to protect themselves while they're dealing with the public. Uh, you know, we uh, we are getting, you know, a big influx. Our students are coming back to campus, so we're getting a lot of people um, close quarters on campus. But just, you know, keeping that message up, you know, and sticking to that message. And there are a lot of, you know, the anti-vax messages and, and uh, you know, the media covering those things that's out there. Um, and it is having an impact, but, you know, for the people who believe in the science, you know, we, we have to be the louder voices and we have to continually uh, reiterate over and over and over the, the protective measures that, that we've, we've put in place and the effectiveness of those, and they are effective. Um, vaccinations, you know, at UCI, uh, uh, students, staff, faculty are required to have vaccinations. Um, we've gotten very little pushback on that, you know, with our community as people are, are really sort of embracing that as, as a uh, you know, means of, of protection, but really, you know, just, just continuing that message. And it's, it is having an effect. Uh, you know, we do have a policy at UCI that if you're inside, you're required to wear a mask, but you're not required to wear a mask outside if you're vaccinated and everybody on the campus pretty much is. But still, when you walk around UCI, you see the students, you know, these young people still walking around, they're still wearing their masks. You know, when they have an opportunity where they could, you know, it'd be okay for them to take them off, but they still have them on. And I think that's really encouraging because, you know, they're really taking the seriousness of this and knowing, you know, they're coming into an environment that we were completely shut down for almost 18 months. And, you know, they're helping us reconstitute that. I mean, obviously, they're the reason that we're, we're there. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see that they're, they're taking it seriously, but we still have to continually reiterate that message and, and, and keep people from being complacent. You know, complacency does, does occur. We get, we get tired of it. Now, I wear a mask as well. I'm sick of wearing a mask. I can't wait till I don't have to wear a mask anymore, but I'm gonna to continue to wear it and encourage others to do so, um, you know, because of the protective uh, uh, measures that, that need to be in place for that. So that would be my, my biggest message, Chuck, is just continually 
reiterate the message, reiterate the science and, you know, the truth of the, of what it is and, and, you know, try to, to be a, a positive message over all this negative, you know, messaging that's going on out there. Well, Randy, thank you so much for your wonderful uh, uh, contribution through your book and um, to what you do at UCI, but also as a fellow scout leader and help, helping champion the cause for our rescue stations that we're putting uh, at the beaches with our young scouts who are, are going to be uh, become Eagle Scouts at each one of the stations. I think uh, over time with more than 7,000 rescues just in one stretch of beach per year between two lifeguard groups, we know it's only a matter of time before life is saved. So thank you for um, your fingerprints on that. Uh, Bill uh, Adcox, uh, now that we've covered the immune compromised, the seniors and also our kids, you're responsible for many families. And I know you take that very seriously that it, you just don't have people that work for you that are security, that are law enforcement, that are um, investigators and just a whole plethora of fabulous people. But I know you personally, you take it personally uh, um, regarding the responsibility you have to the families, to their families. And thank you for your contribution and threat safety science to focus on families. Well, thank you very much, Chuck. And I want to thank everybody that's presented and all the data and stuff that you prepared for this uh, webinar. It's just really critical. I'll just give you a, a sad, somber fact. You know, violence in our great country is, is just off the chart right now. In fact, the last two years, um, homicides have gone up drastically, uh, more so than any other one year jump in history. Far below the Late, 90, late 80s and 90s, certainly, but, but it's gone up a lot. And uh, violence against police officers is up. And we're seeing more police officers that are, that are passing from this violence. But it pales in the amount of police officers that are dying from COVID. Number one cause of death amongst police exactly. officers, by far. And it's such, it's such a serious matter. And trying to talk to individuals and, and get them to understand, this program is particularly important because we do work in my work environment with a vast majority of our, 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 our patients are immune compromised. And vast majority are in the high risk area of 65 or over and other medical conditions. Um, so it hits home every day. And I can tell you that the hospitals that I work for, they're doing, they're doing a yeoman's work. I mean, keeping the infections down, all, all really, really strong preventative measures but it's going into the families in which you've identified through this, these webinars, getting to our own families, the community spread, our children going to school, our children being around other family members and relatives and, and, and going into the communities and wanting to be at events. That's where, that's where the risk is. So I just, I just thank you so much. I, I thank everybody, especially our future leaders here, uh, our younger uh, participants and panelists. Please keep it up. You, you are the future and you see the, the true light. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Bill. And uh, thank you for your contribution to the upcoming article that most of the people that will watch this program are watching it after it's uh, uh, been produced online and our article will have been completed to focus on the checklist and there'll be enhanced videos that uh, will be there. And so thank you for that great contribution. I'd like to go to Jennifer Dingman uh, uh, again before, and we'll let her have the last word before we uh, uh, talk with our young people. We want to talk to Pavita 
and to uh, David and to Paul, but uh, Jennifer, um, uh, we wanted to make sure that all our panelists got a chance to voice their interest in, but I want to come to you to react to the content, and then I'll come back to you at the end, Jennifer. So Jennifer, any thoughts that popped into your mind before we go to our young leaders? Jennifer, are you there? Looks like uh, uh, we uh, will come back to Jennifer. Can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Yes, Jennifer, any comments from what you've heard up to this point? Oh. And I'm going to come back to you at the end. I think we're having a transmission problem, Jennifer. I'm going to come back to you. Uh, I'll come back to you, Jennifer. Uh, Pavita, now that you've you've been able to kind of comment on the emergency issue, which we think is so critical for these uh, organizations uh, and uh, to understand, and we kind of covered the sense of urgency that we had to have that up front. Now that we've dug into the immune compromised group and our seniors and uh, also our kids. Uh, what comments do you have and what do you think is important to your constituency of young women that will be young, who will become moms? And they're gonna be, many of them are gonna be the chief family officer. They're gonna be the CFO because they naturally um, give to their, their families and, and, and their community. What message might you have to the young people and young women and men that uh, are, are coming up and, and maybe because you know so much more about your constituency? Absolutely. So I, I can't uh, overstate enough the power of having medically accurate, scientifically accurate information, which is exactly what MedTAC is doing and what our organization, Girls Health Ed, is doing. Um, it's unfortunate that there are so many myths uh, being perpetuated about the vaccine. And, um, you know, for example, one that, that always comes to mind for me is that women who want to become pregnant eventually shouldn't get the vaccine or mothers, um, you know, those who are already pregnant shouldn't get the vaccine. And that's just absolutely not true. And it's our job to make sure that we're presenting medically accurate, scientifically accurate information so that, you know, those that we're serving can make healthy and informed decisions. Um, and, and, and also making sure that we're communicating our messages in such a way that will resonate to them. So for example, I've, I've seen um, quite a few of the videos on the MedTAC website um, regarding the vaccination uh, conversation. And, and especially in, in certain you know, ethnic groups, certain cultural groups, there might be other um, you know, myths or misconceptions about um, the vaccine just because of things that people have been hearing in their neighborhoods and in their community. And, and just making sure that we're presenting our presenting everything that we need to in such a way that will be, you know, culturally relevant, linguistically relevant, and making sure that the unique needs and concerns of, of, of the people that we're trying to reach are being addressed. So for example, one common concern is, you know, and especially some of these vulnerable populations that we're working with, like the uninsured or the, um, the um, those who are not legally um, in the country being concerned that the, that if they get the vaccination that they'll be forced to leave the country or will have to provide some proof of um, of legal residency and just making sure that we're addressing um, those concerns, I think, is really important. 
Fantastic. Thank you for bringing that up because that's one of the critical issues that we found in our um, Take the Shot, Save a Life program and the vaccination conversation was that there was a, a baseline fear that names would be recorded and then that would uh, uh, that would uh, have an impact on families and, and, and then they've got a double risk of um, losing their livelihood at the same time that they might get COVID from uh, high exposure jobs. So thank you for bringing that up. That's really thoughtful to do that. Uh, David, um, uh, you are such an articulate uh, uh, young man, and I think you have a rare perspective on how the ecosystem operates. Uh, now that you've heard uh, the emergency issues, but now that we've talked about the most vulnerable, those immunocompromised, our seniors, and then our children, your thoughts and your message to other young adults. You're muted, David. No matter how long this goes on, that will always happen at least once a day to me. Sorry about that. Um, I, the thought I keep coming back to is that despite all of the fatigue that there is around COVID, around conversations around COVID, it really strikes me how important now it is now more than ever to be informed and to be open to talking to people and really coming from a place of empathy and not being judgmental or condescending in the way that we talk to people about these conversations, because that won't get us anywhere. I think that the most productive conversations I've had, and I'm sure other people on this panel can relate to, are the conversations that feel genuine and that seem like you're coming from a place where you want and have the other person's best interest at heart. So. I find that it's really important just to make sure we have honest, open conversations and that we really inform people what the facts are, given that there's so much debate, like Pavita said, about what objective truth is at this moment in time. So everyone who's here is obviously interested, is, is a leader in this issue, and I'm really excited to see what we can do with the information that you've been helpful with putting out, Dr. Dunham. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to our, our, our next webinar when we're going to cover a number of practical questions. What do I do about the holidays? What do I do about travel? How can I be most safe if I do travel? Because CDC is going to recommend not traveling until we have the background uh, community immunity and the infection rates go down. But we know that we are going to have an enormous number of people that are moving. And a lot of them, David, are going to be in your age group and Pavita, your age group. And, and uh, so what can we do to minimize bringing home the virus to families if we're college students or if we're young adults that are going home? So we're looking forward to that. Jennifer, are, are you back connected? Can you share the last word with us? And if not, then I'll close us um can you hear me yes we can thank you dr denham yeah i don't know what happened i've been having issues uh through oh jennifer we're losing you again we'll record for those of you uh that are on live today we'll no record. Jennifer, we're Jennifer, we're not getting you. So I think I'll close today, and we'll record you uh, for the the enduring content. So what what I'd like to do is I just uh, I'm just going to toggle back to our screen just for one moment here, and I I would like to thank. Uh, uh, all of our speakers today who did a wonderful job uh, and really provided the rare information uh, that is so valuable from the front line and from what we're what we're uh, 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 what we're dealing with and what we always say to our uh, medtech audiences that we need to fight the good fight finish the race and keep the faith 
everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. And so I just like to thank Bill Adcox, you for being such a great leader and uh, Randy for what you're doing in the university, Pavita for what you're doing uh, with the young ladies and helping them bring, bring them along. I'm excited to hear what uh, David Grinsfelder will be, be doing in the future. I think there's a great future there for him. Um, we're so thankful for Dr. Boats, who's not with us today because he's taking care of uh, cancer patients, uh, uh, probably the sickest patients on the planet. And there's nobody I would rather have take care of me than such a brilliant and dedicated uh, man as Dr. Boats. He's kind of our, our hero. So we just like to thank all of you. And we'll thank Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Peabody, who's uh, also on duty today, and uh, our other caregivers. We'll close this webinar today, and we'll look forward to seeing you next month. We're going to cover the, the really practical challenges of traveling. How do we travel safely? How do we meet safely? How do we get through the holidays without putting our families at risk? So thank all of you and God bless you and have a great month.